Hey guys, good morning. Thank you for joining us uh, today. There's a lot of different reasons that you may have joined us. We have people all over the world uh, that are watching. Uh, we want to let you know that we want to know you. Um, if we don't have a relationship with you in any way, uh, we want to hear about your story, what God's doing in your life. And a couple of ways that you can do that with us uh, is by going to our website at lifepointchurch.org um, where you can follow us on our social media accounts at our Facebook, um, Twitter, and Instagram. We have hope and, and pray that this sermon today uh, would help you in your relationship with Christ. Um, if you do not have a relationship with Christ, we want to help you uh, find one and, and know that uh, Jesus Christ is real. We want to help you in that. Part of having a relationship with Christ is being a part of a local congregation. Um, this today's sermon is not a substitute for biblical community. Um, it is just supplemental in your relationship. So we would hope that to see you um, at one of our gatherings on a Sunday morning at either 9 or 1030. Uh, so we really hope that we see you there soon. Uh, come see us and thanks again for, for joining us today. Uh, let's get ready to pick up the sermon today because that's why you're here. If you'll pick up your Bibles and go to Exodus chapter 33 and 34, we're going to attempt to cover uh, an overview of, uh, of those two books. But here's what I want to do. I want to recap where we've been um, in this third semester of this book of Exodus. And if you've not been here, I'll try to pull you in. Uh, what's basically happened in the book of Exodus in this third series is God has repeatedly over and over and over demonstrated his power and his presence is the greatest thing that those people could have ever desired. Over and over again, his power, his presence, his power, his presence. You need me, you need me. And the response of the Israelites was rebellion, to turn their backs on that goodness of God and choose to pursue things that they wanted, their way, not God's way. So over and over again, this has been the pattern throughout. And the most recent treachery of the people against God was as Moses went up to the mountain to hear from God. They got a little nervous. They didn't see God for a while. They didn't see Moses. So they started freaking out. And they uh, basically made an idol, an impotent golden uh, cow uh, that they used to worship back in Egypt. This was the ultimate expression of, of, of treachery and rebellion against God. This was... While on the honeymoon, uh, Israelites basically uh, got back with an old girlfriend and uh, defiled the wedding bed on the honeymoon. So this is a, a very treacherous act against God. And he became angry. The Bible actually uses the word wrath to describe God's hatred of sin. That's what stirs up God. That's what pours out wrath is Sin. God has wrath upon sin. Uh, so as we talk about wrath in the book of Exodus, I want to let you know, we don't have an agenda at our church to preach about God's wrath. What we do have an agenda about is preaching the word of God as it is in the text. So if it's there, that's what we're going to give you. I'm not going to rob you. I'm not going to skirt around things that may be difficult. And talking about God's wrath is not a seeker-friendly message. Clearly, we know that, right? It, it, it offends modern sensibilities, but truth is never defined by, by how it makes people feel, is it? Like, we don't define truth by how it makes people feel, if it's good or not. No, truth is truth. And the truth of it is, is God has wrath towards sin. It's always holy, 
and it's always justified. So what does he do against this treacherous act? He says this, I'm taking everybody on the, if you'll, whoever's on the Lord's side, come over here on this side of the line. Cross the line. And all those people did who were on the Lord's side. And as he got them over here on the side, he said, listen, now I want you to go and I want you to kill everybody else that's on the other side who's not on the Lord's side. Take your sword, kill your neighbor, kill your family member who's ever not on the Lord's side. Kill them. Wow, we looked at that last week. That's pretty powerful. God has wrath on sin. He hates it. He detests it. He always punishes it then, and he punishes it now. Now, even though uh, the people that were still on the Lord's side, they were just as guilty. They had committed treachery, and God has grace upon them, but God always punishes sin. We're told at the end of chapter 32 that God put a plague upon them. They were punished. They weren't consumed in the moment, but they were punished for the sin of worshiping the golden calf. Today, in that lesson, let me just kind of capture, for those that have trusted in Christ, have crossed that line, God's never going to pour out his wrath in a consuming way against you. Not because you're not guilty, and not because you've made up for it by doing good deeds, but because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. God didn't suppress the wrath. He poured it out on the Son, and He drank every ounce of the wrath that was aimed at me and you because He loves us, and we get to exchange that. That's the beauty, beauty of the grace of God. Uh, the, the idea that we're saved from hell is actually incorrect. What we're saved from is the wrath of God. God saves us from himself. Saved from God, saved by God. Right? By grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. It's all grace. All right? So what we're going to look at today as God has continued to demonstrate that he is the greatest pursuit that they should have. He's been trying to teach them this lesson from the get-go. Would you just stop pursuing other things um, it's me. Per pursue me and everything's going to be fine. He's been trying to teach them this lesson. He's been trying to teach us this lesson. Let's find out today if they can finally get it. If they could just grasp this lesson that he's been trying to teach, let us read the Word of God. Before we do so, let's pray before we open it up. Father, we love you. We do not take lightly um, opening up your word today to study it, to see what it would have for us, what it reveals about you. That's the first thing we declare today, God, in this church. We are opening this Bible to see who you are, not what you can do for us. God, may we just forgive us when we do that. Every time we open our Bibles is to find out who you are, not what you can do for us. Father, that is the massive lesson that you're teaching in this text today as well. That, that you and pursuing your presence above all things is superior. We want to be with you. We want to be like you. God, you are the gift. As we read this text today, God, go with us. Because if you're not there, we don't want to go there. We're inviting you in. Father, please come Put your presence on us today. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. 
All right, so 33. Let me tell you what's going on. Moses has gone back up to the mountain to hear instruction from God. What's the next thing you want us to do? What's the next thing you want me to do as the mediator? Moses wants to make things right with God. Let's see the response from the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you've brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. This is sounding really good. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. Now stop just right there, if we can for a moment. He has just promised the world. I'm sending you. You're going. All those promises I made to you, here it comes. I'm taking care of your enemies. Here it comes. Everything your hearts desire. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment that I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Oreb onward. Here's what just happened. God is revealing His glory, the value, the treasure that he actually is. He comes to the Israelites. He says, I'm going to fulfill my promise. My promise was to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to eradicate, slay every single enemy that's ever wronged you. I'm going to give you freedom. I'm going to give everything your heart has ever desired. Your dreams are coming true, Israelites. You get all the blessings of me, but you don't get me. You you get the blessings, but you don't get the blesser. You get the gifts, but you don't get the giver of the gifts. You get the power of God, but you don't get the presence of God. You get my hand, but you don't get my face. This is devastating news. Devastating news. Think about who God is talking to in this moment. Who are these people? Let's remember who they are. There are people that have been in 400 years of poverty and slavery. They had nothing to their name. Nothing. No money, no power, no authority, no freedom. No land. Tons of enemies, oppressed people. They literally had nothing to their name. God promises them the world. Everything they've ever longed for. You must know these people could have longed for the land they've never had. I want milk and honey because we're hungry people. I want money. I want power. I want you to take care of all of my enemies, God. Yes, yes, yes. You know they wanted the blessings of God, but God said, 
You get my blessings, but you don't get me. And it tore them up. What would you do? Let's pause for just a moment. What will you do? Let's put ourselves in the seat of the Israelites for a moment. Maybe your story is of one where you grew up impoverished your life. You had nothing. It's a tough life. Maybe you had a lot. I don't know. But maybe, picture yourself if you were, uh, man, you had a lot of enemies. I'm sure you in the room, you all have enemies, right? There's people that try to wrong you your whole life. Poverty, no wealth, no health, no land, no home. You got nothing, nothing to your name. You just strip down. You can't you don't even know you're paying your bills next week. Your bank account is desperately low, and you don't know where the money's coming from. You have no influence in life, no power, no authority. Sociologically, you just you don't rank. You just you're just at the bottom of the totem pole. And God comes to you and says, Listen, I'll give you ten million right now. Ten million dollars. I will give you power. I will give you authority. I'll give you rank. I'll give you fame. I'll give you fortune. I will give you beachfront property. Steaks, drinks, chocolate forever. As much as you want to eat. I'll give you rank. I'll give you status. I'll give you toys, cars, adult things that look really fancy and make you look really good. I'll give you kids. They'll be geniuses valedictorians, they'll all get college scholarships, they'll make it to the league. They will make your name famous. I'll give you all of that, health, wealth, prosperity, but you don't get me. What would you do? What would you do? If you hesitate, you cannot be a Christian. If you consider the thought for a moment, you do not understand the gospel God is the gift. He is the treasure. And that's what he's teaching here. That's what he's teaching in this passage. We have become a people that have been consumed with the blessings of God and not the God who gives the blessings. Think about our prayer life. God, give me. Give me peace, give me health, give me wealth, give me a job, give me a spouse, a hot faithful one. Give me the the car, the house, the toys. Give me, give me, give me. We have become a people who want the blessings of God. And how many times do we stop and just say, God, give me you. You're sufficient. God, just give me more of you. Do we pray that way? Or do we pray wanting and consuming the things of God? I think we know the answer to that. We're guilty. We're guilty. That's that, that's that old man-centric flesh that comes up with us and we look at God as a servant. He's this divine butler to us who, who we call upon when we're parched. Or he's the, he's the ambulance driver when we're in an emergency situation. We call unto God because we think he exists to provide blessings for us. Wow. Clearly, that's not what he's teaching this passage. Let me tell you what the greatest deterrent for us pursuing God in our lives. It's not poison. It's apple pie. It's not, in, it's not evil things. It's good things. 
We feast on all of the things of God. We become so full on his things that we have no room for God himself. The greatest deterrent for our hunger for God is feeding at the table scraps of the world instead of feeding the hunger of our bellies with God's drink and soul food for our, for our lives. Feeding on God is the, is the number one source. That's why we're full, because we're feeding on all His blessings and we have no room for God. We think God exists for us and what He's going to give us. We do this, we think about heaven. Everyone wants heaven. We think, wow, if I could just get heaven. And we miss the entire boat. Sure, heaven will be great. No tears, no tumors, no backaches, no headaches, no cancer. None of those things. Glorified bodies, loved ones, amazing truths of heaven. But... Those things are not the blessing. Those things are not the point. When you get God, God is the gift of heaven. Like eternity and being in heaven is not the gift. It's not the destination. We get God. We, we get to stand before the presence of God. We're not going to be distracted by all the blessings that he has. Oh, oh God, I, yeah, I saw you, man. I'm all good. I'm going to go check out these blessings over here. No pain, no sorrow. I'm going to catch up with some old friends. No, you're going to be standing in the presence of God because he is the gift of heaven. God's there. God is the gift, not his things. And that's what's teaching in this passage, that God is the gift. You could, you could have everything in the world, but if you don't have God, you have nothing. You can have everything... But if you don't have God, you have nothing. That is what he's teaching in this passage. Even the church is not immune to wanting the blessings of God, but not the presence of God. Trying to do the work, the power of God, without the presence of God being there with us, we get caught up, even from a staff perspective. And even you, if you are a functioning part of this body, to try to make church happen. I'm going to work really hard. Man, we're going to get a lot of people in these seats on Sunday. We're going to do some cool graphics and music to draw a lot of people in here. Let's make ministry happen. We do all those things and we want the blessing of God. God, would you just bring a lot of people here? Can you just fill these seats? Let's go three services. Let's take everybody across the street in that new neighborhood. Let's get them all in here. We want all of God's blessings on our church. And we stop and we say, God, I want your blessings, but I I'm not asking for your presence. And that's what we're, we're doing. That's what I've been praying through as I read this text today. Listen, I don't know what God's going to do in the future of this church. I don't know what he's going to do the next season. But I do know this. If he ain't going, I don't want to go. I don't care how many people he fills up in this auditorium on Sunday. I don't care how many new neighborhoods grow and build and come. I don't care. I don't care how cool it looks on the outside. If God is not with us, it does not matter. We have nothing. We have nothing apart from God. This sentiment, this idea continues to go. Uh, this is another reason I will say this, that we need to be a wise people as to what a false gospel is. 
One of the roles I have as a pastor is to, um, is to call out false teaching. If you read the passages of, uh, uh, in Titus and Timothy, a role of a pastor, I'm supposed to expose false teaching. And false teaching is this. Any kind of gospel that you hear where it is promising the things of Jesus and not Jesus himself being the gift. Recently, I went to a, an event where I heard a speaker who was trying to share the gospel. And his message of why people needed Jesus was because of what he could do for them. Man, life's hard. It's tough, ain't it? You hurt, you got suffering, you got pain. Yeah, that's me, man. Well, you know what? You need Jesus. Because Jesus will comfort you and he'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. You even get heaven. Man, all that's true once I have Christ. But all those things are not the gospel. The gospel is I get God because I'm born without him. I do not have God. I do not possess him. I do not have a relationship with him until he sent his son to die on the cross. And then I believe, I trust in that. Now I get God. God is the gift of the gospel, not what he can do for us. Man, you, you need to listen to Gospels and you need to be a church. We need to be a church so we can hear false teaching, whether it be on the TV or any other podcast or anything. If it's promising that Jesus is not the focal point, that you just get his stuff, it's not the Gospel. And we've got to be a people who understand, who can weed those things out because God is the gift. The response of the people in verse 4. Man, they hear this news, this decree that God said, I'm not going with you. And they mourn. It's called a disastrous word. They didn't ponder it. Like they didn't say, huh, let's gather, let's consider this. It sounds like a pretty good deal. No, they mourned. It was a disastrous word to them. Why? God had just promised to eradicate their enemies off the face of the earth. Never again will someone speak out or draw a sword against you. Why? Why was this such disastrous news? Because genuine peace is not found in a world without enemies. Genuine peace is found with our Creator. He just promised them a land flowing with milk and hungry, or with milk and honey. You'll never be hungry ever, ever again. Don't you want this? No, they didn't, because they knew that God was their soul's drink and their soul's bread. Their bellies needed to be full, not with food, not with milk, not with honey, but with God. They mourned. They threw off all of their, their garments, their ornaments. This is a sign of, of contrition and repentance for want, just denying worldly things. They're like, I don't want any worldly things right now. We just want God. And they're just laying them all aside because they understood that pursuing the things of God meant Nothing, that nothing even compared to the worth of God. Listen, you, I, pursuing anything else in our lives that is not God will always, always leave you discontent and dissatisfied. Now, some of you might say right now, no, I'm pretty good. You might be right now, but it'll fade. It'll go away quick. I don't care how many toys and cars and houses you got. It'll fade all the day. Listen to what Jesus teaches in Mark 8, 36. For what does it a profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? 
what good is it? Like if you get, if you have everything, you're this titan CEO of a company. Your 401k looks really good. You've got all the adult toys, looks pretty good on the outside. You've got the American dream, rocking popularity, fame, status. You look really good. What does it matter? If you don't have God, you forfeited your soul. U-Hauls don't have hearses, and cemeteries don't have storage units. It's not going with you. It's going to end up in someone's yard sale. Eventually, warehouse, yard sale, estate sale, Craigslist, whatever you want to call it. That's where it's all going. You ain't taking it with you. It'll mean nothing. It will mean nothing. And nothing compares to Christ. It will never satisfy you pursuing other things. Think about this. Uh, go down to, uh, listen, I go to Dollar General sometimes down the street, because they're right on the street. I go down there, and I can prove this point to you, because every time I go down there, I see U.S. Weekly or People Magazine on the counter, and, and it's just up there. And all I ever see is people that have pursued other things in life, fame and fortune, celebrity status, and you know what? They're always discontent, aren't they? Fifth marriage. Overmedicated, constantly in strife, and there's no peace. People are attacking them. They can't find happiness. Overdosing on drugs and medication. They get there and they just are not satisfied. This is so true. Why? Because they're pursuing the blessings of God and not God. And you know what God does when that happens? Have at it. You want my blessings, you want fame, you want fortune, you want the toys, you want the life. Here you go. You just don't get me. And he just bows out of it. He says, you can have it. You have it all. And we, our generation says, we look at those people, those celebrities, and we say, that's who I want to be. No, 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 no. That is not who you want to be. Those people forfeit their souls to gain the world. And they're not taking any of that stuff to heaven with them. It doesn't mean anything if you do not have God and a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And I pray that sits and resonates because I believe there's some people here today that have pursued greater things than Christ. And I pray that you would repent today and understand. Christianity teaches that Christ is the greatest treasure. Paul says that everything else in comparison to Christ is manure. It's fecal matter uh, is what he says. It doesn't even compare to the worth, the su- surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. Look at the parable of the hidden treasure with me in Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and he covered it up. Then in his joy... He goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. This is the definition of true Christianity. People that have found a treasure. True Christianity is not accepting Jesus into your heart as if you gave him permission. It's not praying a prayer, filling out a card at church. 
coming down the aisle, VBS decision. No, 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 no. It's people that have found a treasure. And when they found that treasure, they're explosively ready to go abandon everything else if God calls them to do it for the sake of knowing who God is. That is true Christianity. People that have found the treasure. Have you found the treasure? Or is Jesus just marginal in your life? And everything else is central. And true conversion, true Christianity is when people find the treasure of Christ. Now let's keep going. Let's see, let's see the response of Moses to this decree. God has laid it out. What is Moses' response? What is our response? Here's what Moses does. Has he finally learned a lesson? And he said to him, God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Don't do it. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people from the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and you will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy whom who I'll show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passed by, I will put you on a cleft on the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Moses here makes a great case to God. We're not going. Like, like, God, if you make us go, we'll go, uh, but we don't want to go. Uh, we'll just stay here if it pleases you, God, because we don't want to go anywhere without you. Isn't, God, isn't it you that makes us distinct from everybody else in the world? Like, if we go, like, it doesn't matter because we're not distinct anymore because you are the thing. Your presence is what makes us distinct from every other person, people group, in the entire world. So if you're not with us, it just doesn't matter. This presence. not They weren't distinct because they now had a land promise to them. They weren't distinct because they were the people that killed Egypt. They were not just the people uh, distinct because they were Israelites by, by birth. That's not what their distinction was. They were distinct, set apart from the world because they had the presence of God with them them what makes you distinct from the rest of the world are you defined are you distinct by your profession are you known as the blank person oh that's so-and-so's mom so-and-so's dad oh yeah that's the dude online he's always selling something 
That's that guy. It's that lady who's constantly pushing this product or she likes to do this. That's that person. Your identity gets wrapped up and you are distinct from everybody else because of what you do and what you love. And you champion those things so loud that people do not know you're distinct because you have the presence of God in you. I don't want to be the pastor guy. I don't want to be the guy at the creek. I don't want to be the guy that goes to life point. I want to be the Jesus guy. I want to be distinct from the rest of the world by Christ and his presence in me. And I want that for you if you're a follower of Christ. So the question is, what speaks the loudest in your life? And if you dare, go ask someone. Go ask someone who will tell you the truth and not affirm what you want them to tell you. Hey, what do you think of my name? What, what do you think about me? It should be, you love Jesus. God's with you. I can clearly see God's working in your life. Is that what makes you distinct? And if it's not, man, I pray you work through that. And you start to suppress the other things that identify you. And while you're suppressing those, you're speaking louder, louder, louder about you having the power and the presence of Christ in you. Let's get that balanced back out. That's what sets us apart from the world. Now we're going to see God's response to or back to uh, God. God responded to Moses as like a he's like a father. He's pleased. He's like, oh, you finally get it. The things that you said, Moses. Now I'm going to do them. He's been teaching these things, and his son finally gets it. It's like a father who who's who's teaches a kid how to ride a bike. Right, you teach them how to how to bike, and then they over and over again they fall down, they they crash into a bush or a curb. They just over and over again they keep getting hurt. Over and finally they get it. It's like, yeah, you get it. All right, this is incredible. God says, I'm going to do these things. You found favor in my sight. Moses responds and says, Hey, God, show me your glory. Now, remember, Moses had been exposed to God's glory prior. He'd seen him at the burning bush. He's talked to him on the mountain. He has tasted and he's seen the glory of God. Well, he wants more. He wants more. He's thirsty. He's hungry for more. God, just show me who you are. Let me see some more of your glory. God says, I can't. If you look upon me, Moses, you're dead. You'll burst into flames. You'll be consumed because I'm so holy and you are not. You are such a sinner and I cannot be in your presence. You'll burst into flames. But here's what I'll do for you, Moses. I'm going to hide you up in this cave, this cleft by a rock. I'm going to walk by. I'm going to put my hand over your face. You're not going to see me, but you'll see my back as I pass through. I'll give you a sneak peek of who I am. So God preaches a sermon to Moses to tell him who he is, his resume, his character, his name. Let's look at what he says. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. And here comes tension. But who will by, not, by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children. To the third and fourth generation. So here's what God does in his 
he's basically giving a resume, a sneak peek of who he is, and he starts to lay out these attributes of who he is to his people, only to his people. These attributes, this character, this nature of God is only for the people of God. This is not who he is to the entire world. This is who he is to his people. And he describes himself as gracious, merciful. Those are the two things he says up top. He is merciful towards people that deserve punishment, but yet he has, he has shown grace, grace, and he's poured out that wrath upon his son instead of them. That's all by grace. Merciful, gracious. Then he goes on to describe his steadfast love, abounding love, his faithfulness. Basically what he's describing is that he is the great I do. He's entered into a marriage with these people, and when God says I do, he doesn't go anywhere. His love for these people, his love for us, those in Christ Jesus, never runs out. Despite our rebellion and continued sin against him for those in Christ. Man, so many times we get in these positions where we, we're like the Israelites and we're like, man, have I done it this time? Is God, man, does he really, really still love me? Uh, I've done this and I've done that. Maybe he's going to turn his back on me at the end. Is he going to punish me like he's punishing them? Listen, if you are a follower of Christ, he never will t- turn his back on you. His steadfast love never runs out. That's what abounding means. It just doesn't run out. There is no grace expiration date on your salvation. It's over and over again, over and over again. You never lose your salvation once God has given it to you. Now, if that leads to a licentiousness, which is a license to sin and abuse God's grace, you don't understand the gospel. Paul said, by no means does that mean you get to do whatever you want to do and keep putting God to the test. He says, no, you look at him and you say, steadfast love, faithfulness, never leave me. I want to love you more than I ever had. I want to stop sinning in my life. I want to kill the things that dishonor you. That's what the gospel means. We look at all the gracious things of God. It's precious steadfast, love, comforter. Some of you are hurting today. He's always there. He's the only person that will never, ever disappoint you. Even your spouse will do that. Even your children will do that. God never will for those in Christ. But then he builds this tension. And reveals the other side of his character and his nature. says he will not clear the guilty. He will visit the iniquity upon the father's children and the next generation and the next generation. Here's what he's saying in this moment. You must understand this. He's not saying that he's going to punish all of their their ancestors for what they've just done by the golden calf thing. What he is saying, though, he's saying they're going to suffer for what you've done. They're going to feel the effects of your sin from generation to generation to generation. Your sin and my sin today will impact the next generations and the next generations and the next generation. The things that you do today, they're watching, 
they're adopting, they will conform. Those patterns of sin, when we as parents of the next generation of people, we begin to pursue greater things than God, when our life looks like, hey, mom and dad, they really love to do that more than they love to be with God. I, I'm, I see it. Like, like They just get really jacked up about this, and they spend all their time and their money doing this. They say that they love God more than anything, but they do this. That's going to be passed down the next generation and the next generation. Our, gener- our, our, our students, our young people, our children are watching everything that we do. And we as parents could either be the greatest deterrent or the greatest influence in their life when it comes to pointing them to Christ. There will be impact. God punishes sin. He never thinks it's cute. Ever. Like if you're a parent in the room and your child, maybe you kind of go back to it when your children were young, and they just did something and they just outright just sin, disobeyed you. And you come to them to call them out. And you're like trying to have this big serious conversation, this serious moment. And they just say something that's just so funny. Like they just, they're saying something so hilarious. And you look at them and you're like, oh, this is so cute. Man, I, I, I can't punish them now. I was going to do the lay a hammer, smack down. But they're just so dang cute. They're so precious. God never does that. He never, ever thinks sin is cute. He always punishes it. We'll suffer for the things that we've done to God. That's how much he hates sin. And we're going to transition in this text. Because what we ask you to do today is pursue God's presence. To pursue his presence. What does that mean? Number one. Some of you might be saying, well, why should I treasure God above everything? Why should he be more valuable? Why can't he just get a piece of the pie and work his way in my schedule? Listen, nothing else that you're pursuing created you or saved you. Nothing else. Nothing else has salvific power in your life. God created you. God saved you. That's why he's worthy of being the greatest treasure in your life. But how do, you, how do you pursue his presence now? Like, what, what does that mean? That's figurative. Like what does that look like? Let me, let me land it. Let me put that. It means everyday faithfulness. Everyday faithfulness. Sometimes it means crawling. Sometimes it's limping. Sometimes it's walking. Sometimes it's running. But everyday faithfulness moves forward and and is being in the presence of God. The Bible would define two main areas to show us what our greatest pursuit is. Time and money. Those two things will reveal what our greatest pursuit is. If God is your greatest pursuit, it will show up in these ways. A weekly commitment, a daily commitment to studying God's Word because God is present in His Word. And you cannot be in the presence of God if you're not studying the Word of God. The mind cannot love what the heart doesn't know. You have to study His Word. Daily, hourly, praying to God. That's where God's at. Those are the things that God's doing. That's where His presence is. Serving others. That's the presence of God. 
discipling other people, being in a small group with other people. God is present in those places, and you must step into them to experience His presence. God is present when you take a lost person to lunch and you share the gospel with them. That's where God's at. I don't know where we're at, but that's what He's doing. The other measure is our money. If you dare, pull up your bank statement later today. Look through that. Man, it's going to show what your greatest pursuit is. If God is your greatest pursuit, it will show up in tithing faithfully, possibly supporting a missionary, showing generosity to a fellow brother or sister in Christ in the church, taking a meal to a hurting family in the church who maybe just had a baby or just got a hospital, your money, being generous with it, taking a coworker to lunch because they're desperate to hear the gospel from you, not your pastor, from you. It'll show up. There are measurables for certain. I just want to lay that question before you. What is your greatest pursuit? The band's going to come up, and we're going to uh, lead out of those things. If, man, you need help in that area, you have any next step questions that you want to talk with someone about, about how do I, how do I pursue God's presence more? How do I serve, give? Uh, man, how do I get in a group? All of those things that we just kind of described, come talk to us outside. I'd love to be able to help you do that and walk in obedience to that. Uh, we'll respond during this first song that these guys are going to play. And uh, let this just be a time of reflection. Let this be a time of identification of the pursuits that we've pursued greater than God. And hopefully that leads to a place of repentance to get those things in order. And for those today that are unsure of where you stand as, as, as God parted that line, who was on the Lord's side and who was not, if you're unsure of that today, if you really don't know, listen, come talk to us. That is a dangerous place to be. We're going to help you know who Christ is, what he did for you, so that you would have confidence and you would get to experience this God that we see of steadfast love, abounding faithfulness. Let me pray. God, we love you. We are uh, committed to your word here, Father, and just teaching what we see in the scriptures. And God, that's an amazing freedom in that because I just have to just throw it up and let you do what you want to do and allow the Holy Spirit to work in this place. God, thank you for clarity. God, thank you for revealing that you are the greatest treasure, the greatest pursuit that we could ever possibly need or want. Fill that hole in us today. God, we love you so much. We thank you for your grace, your mercy, your abounding love. In his precious name we pray, amen.